Good afternoon. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. One of the most remarkable stories of the past 20 years has been the rise of India, a country that has been a focal point of uh, and that virtually gave birth to development economics since its independence. Since the early 1990s, India has pulled millions of people out of poverty. It's created a growing middle class. It's uh, built multinational corporations that are world-class, and it's transformed much of its economy and its society. It did so by introducing classical liberal uh, reforms under democratic government. But India, of course, is far from uh, having implemented a night watchman uh, style state. Like China, India's story is one of a very poor country moving in the right uh, direction but it still has a largely unfree economy, thus the seeming paradox of a high-growth country with a large state. Or, as Indians sometimes say, India grows at night when the government sleeps, the origin of the title of the book that we'll be discussing today, which implies private success despite public sector failure. Thus also the debates that have been ongoing in India during the era of reform take on a sort of uh, glass half full, glass half empty uh, feeling. About uh, a little more than 10 years ago, we, we had uh, Gurcharan Das speak here and uh, along with, with Swami, and that was, I think, certainly the feel of that discussion. But there's certainly plenty to be critical about. We at Cato have done quite a bit of work uh, looking at many areas where India has to implement major uh, reform, including through our annual Economic Freedom of the States of, of India report, which we co-publish in India. Uh, the fact that reforms for, the, for many years in India have been stalled despite uh, the so-called dream team uh, leading uh, the country has added more to the skeptic skepticism of India's future. So I'm pleased uh, to be able to host today one of the most high-profile and uh, keen observers of Indian politics and society, Gurcharan Das, somebody who has typically been an optimist in these debates. He is the author of this book, India Grows at Night, a liberal case for a strong state, and he will explain what he means by that as a classical liberal. He is also the author of several books, including India Unbound, which came out, I think, a little more than 10 years ago, The Difficulty of Being Good, both of which are bestsellers in India. Uh, he is a regular columnist at the Times of I India and is the former CEO of Procter & Gamble India. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Cato Institute, Gurcharan Das. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. You do me honor by inviting me here and you all for coming to hear me speak about my new book. Uh, let me begin with a story of two towns which are on the border, border of, of the nation's capital, Delhi. The two towns are Faridabad and Gurgaon. Now, 25 years ago, Faridabad was considered the future of Delhi, of India. It had an active municipality. 
It had an industrial estate, investment was coming in. Uh, it had rich agriculture, and it had a direct railway line to the nation's capital. 25 years, and then also it had a state government which was determined to showcase this town as the future of the state and of India. 25 years ago, Gurgaon was wilderness, rocky soil, pitiable agriculture, even the goats ran away from it. <laughs> Today, 25 years later, Gurgaon is the Millennium City. It has 27 shopping malls, seven golf courses, 32 million square feet of commercial space occupied by the world's largest corporations, fabled apartment complexes, and it is, in fact, an engine of India's economic growth. Faridabad today is still groaning under the weight of red tape and official extortion and has not even experienced the first real ener energetic liberalization after 1991. So what happened? Well, Gurgaon's advantage, a disadvantage, turned out to be an advantage. Almost no government meant less red tape, less officials to block development. In fact, it just got a municipality a couple of years ago, uh, an official uh, municipality. So it was, it's a story of self-reliant citizens who dug bore wells since they, when they didn't have water, they put in generators. There was this, the, the, the very, very uh, impressive uh, builders uh, got into the act and, and when government schools did not function, they set up private schools, even in the slums which charge only $4 a month as fees, and similarly in health, private health clinics. Now, in some ways, the new India is Gurgaon writ, la writ large. It's a story of private success and public failure. And so often people ask in India, why do we need a government at all? with corrupt politicians and unresponsive bureaucrats. And so they say, as they sip their chai, India grows at night when the government sleeps. Now, to rise without a state is a brave thing. But is it wise or sustainable? Shouldn't India grow during the day? And wouldn't Gurgaon be better off with functioning drainage system, nicely paved roads without potholes, sidewalks, parks, libraries?
and a decent public transport system. So both corrupt Faridabad and laissez-faire entrepreneurial Gurgaon are the wrong models for India's future governance. Faridabad would be happier with less corruption. Gurgaon would be happier with functioning services. It should not take us in India 12 years to build a road when it can easily be done in three years. It should not take us 15 years to get justice in the courts when it should take three years or four years. And this is one of the reasons why I wrote this book, India Grows at Night. And in it, I make a case for a liberal, strong state. Now, what is a liberal, strong state? First of all, I think many of you here are classical liberals, so you will not get, you'll not get very con concerned about the word strong state. Strong state is not what I, is not, I'm not talking about Stalin's Russia or Mao's China or even benign Singapore. We're talking about the classical liberal state, which was in the minds of the thinkers who first thought about the modern state. It was the state that the American founding fathers had in mind. It was the kind of state that the Indian founding fathers had in mind. So a strong liberal state has three pillars. One, it has an executive which is capable of taking quick, determined, decisive action when required. Number two, it is, that action is bound by the rule of law. And number three, that action is accountable to the people. Now, unfortunately, the three pillars, like the pillars in this building, do not reinforce each other. And an excessive concern with accountability does reduce the power of the state to act. And this is what we've seen happen in India in the last few years with this movement, what we call the Anna Hazare movement, which was a movement for accountability, has so, has so scared the bureaucrats that they're unwilling to put their name on a piece of paper. The, I think the part of the problem also is the discipline of political science. Political science in the last 100 years has been so concerned with accountability very few really have written about state capacity. And therefore, a number of modern states are suffering from this, the weakness of the executive to, to act. So how are we going to bring about this strong liberal state in, in India? Now, before I give, 
I, I mean, this is not a how-to book, 10 ways to fix India in uh, 10 chapters. But I am in this, this is an essay. It's a, actually, in some ways, I'm an 18th century pamphleteer who is advocating. And in every chapter, there are, there are ans answers, and particularly one chapter, which is called What is to be Done. And, uh, um, but before we go into that, I thought it's a good idea to look at India. And India sort of sit back and look at the limitations that India might pose to the sort of solutions that we might want to consider. Well, clearly, India is a bottom-up success, unlike China, which is a top-down success. India is a success of the people, the entrepreneurs, and China has really been orchestrated by an amazing technocratic elite that has built extraordinary infrastructure in the last 30 years. Um, and therefore, India has produced something like 25 globally competitive companies. And in another five years or so, we'll have another 20 or so companies which will be globally competitive. I have a Chinese friend who invests in India. In fact, he invests only in India. And he comes around to my house once in a while. And uh, I think he comes around because he thinks I'll give him some stock tips. <laughs> but he has not been coming around recently because he thinks those tips may have gone bad. Um, but he's, he's actually is quite an extraordinary fellow because he made a lot of money in a distant province of China. But he made the mistake of not sharing it with the party leadership of that province. And so they found out how much money he had, and they went after him. And, but he was a clever fellow. So before they got to him, he spirited himself out of China and his money overnight. Landed up in Hong Kong. Two days later, they had found him in Hong Kong. And then he took a plane to Vancouver. And he went to Canada. And if you arrive in Canada with $250 million in your bank, you get residence very quickly, <laughs> which is what he did. But a few month, a few a month or so later, they had found him in Canada, and so he was worried again, and so he quietly drove down to California, and of course in the U.S. also, if you have that kind of bank balance, you get a green card, which he did pretty quickly. However, he couldn't rest easy because they found him there as well, and that's when he went to Singapore. And it's a tribute to the governance levels of Singapore that they have not dared touch him in Singapore. Anyway, so he invests his money in India. And one day, he said he had a backache. And I could see that he was uncomfortable. And I said, what happened? And he says, your, your roads. He had gone to Haryana visiting factories where he was planning to invest. And he says, how did you become the second fastest growing economy? in the world with this kind of infrastructure. So I told him India grows at night. And uh, he thought for a while. 
And then he said, you mean India has risen with one hand tied? And I nodded. He said, you know, the nightmare of the Chinese leadership should be, what if that second hand got untied? What if India did begin to grow during the day? So the mistake, of course, we make in India when we talk about the race between India and China is to, to, believe, is to ask who will win, who will get rich first. And that's really not the race. Uh, China's good decade ahead, if not more. But more than that, I think both countries will turn into middle class countries. I do believe that both uh, India will get to about five, six thousand dollars middle. Um, and then, but then it will get stuck, as China will get stuck also as a middle income country. And they'll get stuck because China will get stuck because of its politics, and India will get stuck with its governance. So, really, uh, the race between China and India is whether China will fix its politics first or India will fix its governance first. And the other mistake we make is to think that the Indian state has become weak only in recent times because of coalition politics, because of uh, a weak prime minister, an extraordinarily weak prime minister, I might add. And, but we forget that actually India has always been a weak state and a strong society, unlike China, which has been a strong state and a weak society. And the fact is you need both. You need a strong society to make this, and you need a strong state to get things done, and you need a strong society to make that state accountable. India's history was a history of empires, I mean, of kingdoms. And China's history was a history of empires, competing kingdoms in India and political disunity. We had four empires in India, the Maurya, the Gupta, the Mughal, and the British. All four empires are weaker than the Chinese empires. Uh, and the Chinese person is, is defined by the state. The Indian is defined by society. In China, the emperor gave the law, and then he interpreted the law. In India, the law preceded the king. And the job of the king was to uphold, law meaning dharma, the job of the king was to uphold dharma for the sake of the people. And the interpreter of the law was not the king, but the Brahmin. So very early on, in 6th century BC, in the kingdom of Magadha, we had created a liberal division of powers which weakened the state. And so oppression in India never came from the state. It came from society. In China, oppression came from the state. And the answer to that oppression in India was the Buddha, was a, a, a spiritual entrepreneur, a guru, who comes along every few years in India, and uh, who actually um, reduces the oppression uh, for the people. The Chinese are assimilators, the Indians are accumulators. Many of the same migrations that came and peopled China came also to India. 
In China, they assimilated them into one Han identity. In India, we accumulated them into 2,200 subcastes, what we call jatis. And so in 1947, India could only have become a democracy. And today, India is a bottom-up success. So that is, it's consistent to a historical pattern. And the latest Anna Hazare movement is really a collision of a strong, of, a, of, a strong, of strong society with a weak state. That society, that's the traditional society, is now morphing into a civil society. So in this context, let's to take a look at what is to be done to bring this thing, I think, another five minutes. Uh, well, if we are lucky, we could get a leader who is also a reformer. Uh, and you know, we had a strong leader in Indira Gandhi, but she was no reformer of institutions. She was a destroyer of institutions. And um, countries have been, have suffered from the same governance weaknesses. I mean, the UK was a very poor, a very, 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 very poorly governed country as 200 years ago. But then it did its reform, did its reform acts. You could buy a seat in parliament, you could buy a job in the government. Those reform acts plus leaders like Disraeli, Gladstone over gradually. And in this century, Margaret Thatcher, who most of us think of as a free market kind of leader, but actually did a huge, had a huge impact on the governance. And, and she improved the, uh, the accountability of the state enormously. Um, so if we can't, we can't obviously in a democracy, you know, sort of, decide on having a strong leader. Uh, so the answer in such a case, um, in my view, and there's no silver bullet to this, and the reforms that we need are institutional reforms, reforms of the bureaucracy, a strong liberal state, for that, we need a, a reform of the bureaucracy, the police, the judiciary. Now, these things are much tougher than even economic reforms. And I don't think we, we can wait, as UK did, for 100 years to make these things happen. And so, what's the answer? Well, if there's no simple answer, the, on, the hope I see, frankly, is the new middle class. It was the new middle class which was behind the Anna Hazare movement. Now you can, there are many, many definitions, numbers floating around of the size of this class. But um, I've been on the boards of consumer product companies, one of them being Walmart, one being Mars, the candy company that's here right in Washington. And of course, Procter & Gamble before that. We, the way we define that middle class is $20,000 household income on a PPP basis. And on that basis, about a third of India today is middle class, and more than 50% of China is middle class. 
So whether it's, and it's not a car-owning middle class, but nevertheless, it has the mindset of that middle class. In addition, Narendra Modi, who is the chief minister of Gujarat, talks about a neo-middle class, which is an aspiring class of people who have come from villages and settled, got jobs in small towns, and everyone has a cell phone in his hand. Now, so if you add those two, you're talking about a substantial number of people. And we saw their impact to some extent in the Anna Hazare movement. But I think the 2014 election will surprise us because 40% of India was not alive before 1991. And a lot of these people now have the vote. So we have the impact of these people on, uh, on and the question of course is whether this group will be able to do the hard work of politics. The hard work of politics, not just street protests are not enough. Uh, they awaken people, but they don't solve problems. And the, the question is, it's really what Tocqueville talked about in his famous book on America, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, where he talked about engaging in the neighborhood. And in this book, I talk about one hour a week to this middle class. And I said that that's where politics begins. Don't worry about the corruption of uh, Robert Vadra or uh, Andamitu Raju. Uh, worry about corruption in your neighborhood. And one hour a week in your neighborhood is how politics begins. The other thing I have advocated in this book is a, a liberal party. I frankly do not think either the BJP or the Congress have, will become that <clears throat> liberal party. I mean, it would be ideal if we, those parties, Congress could me, move slightly towards the center and the BJP could get rid of its communal uh, sort of nationalistic uh, religious uh, background but it's not going to happen. So the idea is such a party was not going to go tomorrow and win power in India, but it will bring the agenda of liberal politics, of the reform of the institutions, the economic reforms on the front page and in the national discourse every day. This book began actually uh, Dalibor is here. This book was born in Tahrir Square, where I was invited by the democracy movement in Egypt to come and speak uh, and present the India model for the future of, of, of Egypt. Um, they asked me three questions in that conference. First question was, how did you keep the generals out of power? And I said, you know, we haven't asked this question for 65 years in India. And they said, you don't realize how far you've come. The second question they asked was, they said that 11% of Egypt is Christian, Coptic Christian, and 13% of India is Muslim. They said, we believe that the Christians of Egypt, 
of, in, of Egypt are insecure, but the Muslims of India are not insecure. So how did you do that? And that again surprised me because I had in my mind the 2002 Gujarat riots, the 1984 Sikh riots, and I wasn't going to, thinking of India as a model of secularism. But they, they felt that the Muslims of India were the least radical, fundamentalized, Islamicized Muslims. The third question they asked was, how did you win that outsourcing business so that we can also become a fast-growing economy uh, and get some of that business? Anyway, I'm, I mentioned this to you at the end, the, the story about Egypt, because uh, like Swami in some ways, I've been a critic uh, of India. But what this, what this Egyptian experience taught me was that India had come a long way. If you read Indian newspapers, you think we're going to fall over the cliff tomorrow. But if you look back, we had come a long way. And now we do need to reform these institutions, but it has to be in the context. The rise of India, the economic rise of India, has clearly been the most important event of my life. And it is also, I believe, something that's good for the world because a nation in the East is rising on the principles of liberty, of economic and political liberty. And that's something that's at a time when Western economies are questioning the model of economic liberty. So in, in, I, I personally think that that context is a, is a worthwhile context in which to look at India's future. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Gertrude. Our next speaker is my colleague, Swaminathan Iyer. At the beginning, I mentioned that we uh, have done quite a bit of work on, on India. By we, of course, I meant Swami, uh, who has been very prolific, not just as a, a regular columnist uh, for the Times of India. He writes the Sunday column there. He also writes a regular column for the Economic Times and the articles uh, internationally and here in the U U.S. press. And he has been the author of numerous longer studies that look at uh, an array of India-related issues from the U.S.-Indo uh, relationship to uh, what explains the, the rise of India. And also he's been a co-author of the, the report I mentioned on the economic freedom of the Indian states, which we co-publish. Uh, in India, Swami is a uh, research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and we're very pleased to work with him. Welcome, Swami. Thanks. Well, I think there's no disagreeing that you know first that institutions are important, uh, and that you know it's all very well to say. Uh, India grows while the government sleeps at night. But if the government was really asleep, somebody would come and rob your bank, it would close down your factory. So actually, the government is not asleep. Uh, there's a part, an, an important part of it, which is functioning and has to function, which is why, as you said, when you go to Egypt, for all that you say, in Egypt, people don't say the Indian government is asleep. It says that the institutions are, in fact, functioning. From our own point of view in India, they are in miserable shape. <laughs> uh, but when you go to some other countries, uh, it appears that we are not so bad, and we need to improve. 
the literature, I think, is very, very clear. We had uh, Asamoglu and Robinson, this, late, this recent book called Why Nations Fail. And the focus of that was that the reason why some, some countries succeed and some others fail is that if you have proper institutions, and those institutions are not, uh, make clear that instead of just extracting from the people, you are sharing and having an inclusive form of governance, that is what makes you succeed. Uh, Douglas North earlier on had also talked about the importance of institutions. So it's very, very clear that uh, a successful liberal economy does not mean absence of government. If you have no government at all, you have anarchy. In India, we actually do have places where the government is absolutely absent. They are called the Maoist areas, uh, various places in the jungle belt. Uh, the, the government basically was not there. The Maoists moved in, occupied that particular vacuum, and are running those areas. Nobody claims that those are the areas where there's no government, and therefore India has fast growth. Quite the other way around. So clearly what we do need is a combination of a strong state doing the things that the state should do without getting into all kinds of other areas which are better left to the private sector. Um, in India, the original license permit quota Raj that we talk about, it was created by Mr. Jawaharlal Nehru, who seriously believed that, you know, if you want a better cigarette, surely it has to be a government factory that will produce the better cigarette. There's a notion that uh, private sector is, by, is driven by greed. There's a notion that profit is fundamentally not a very good thing. Uh, the waste of competition is what they talked about. You know, how terrible to have five guys competing and two go bust. It's much better that the state will license exactly two guys and, you know, they will be kept alive and this will then produce better results. So there was this idea of this fine-tuning. That ultimately ended in economic disaster. We had only 3.5% growth for 30, 40 years. It's only when we got away from that very, very detailed government control that we've got much better. And yet, today, when we look back as to what's happened, Nehru did two things. On the one hand, on the economic side, in terms of policy, you could say he was a major failure. But Nehru, the institution builder, was a major success, which we treasure till today. And if you have this reputation in Egypt or other places, I mean, he was the man who said, you know, it is not okay for the government to be all-powerful. You must have a democracy where the others have a chance to come into power and oust you. And the moment the other guys have a chance to oust you, you will not behave too badly towards them for fear of what they might do when they come to power and you're in opposition. There was an independent judiciary. There was a, a series of the computer and auditor general, the election commission, a number of these other autonomous institutions which prevented arbitrary use of power. And although in India, as we say, the legal system in one sense uh, is completely useless because it doesn't convict uh, people uh, in anything less than 150 years or so, which is a, uh, a bit long. On the other hand, if you go against arbitrary government action and go for a writ, you get amazingly good results in India. So, you know, even if uh, an institution like the judiciary, which on the one hand is not functioning, on the other hand, is doing such a good job because of the institutions created from Nehru's time. Uh, as to what all the state should do, it's very easy to talk, as Gurcharan said, you know, you need the police, the judiciary, absolutely correct. But it's much more fundamental than that. We had in our poorest state in India is a state called Bihar. It's about one-tenth of the power, 100 million people. 
And for 15 years, it was ruled by a chief minister called Mr. Lalu Yadav, who in some sense you could say didn't believe in government. Uh, he didn't fill any vacancies anywhere. Uh, funds from the central government came, they were returned unspent. People said, you know, there are no roads. Why aren't you building roads? Roads, he says. If I build a road, whose car will go on it? The rich man's. And whose cow will be killed by the car? He says, <laughs> guys like me. He says, why should we build roads? So, I mean, we had a system where, in effect, the government retreated. The notion of government being asleep. The result was poverty. It was the slowest growing state in India. Then a gentleman called Nitish Kumar, 10 years ago, became chief minister. And he had many problems that there was an administration in tatters. Uh, gangsterism was rampant. Uh, if anybody applied to build a house, he got a note, a ransom note, you know, pay so much. <laughs> if you want to go ahead. If somebody applied to buy a car, by the evening, there was a threat, you know, if you don't pay so much, you're going to kidnap your daughter. So in those, nobody wanted to buy a car, nobody wanted to build a house. So, I mean, the fact that there was no government meant that everything wound down and nothing happened. When the new chief minister came, he faced a problem that, you know, we are very poor, we don't have many funds, uh, we don't have any electricity. How do I go ahead? He did two things. He struck a deal with the prosecutors and the police and the courts on fast-tracking cases against gangsters and criminals. Over the next few years, 78,000 of these guys were put in jail. The improvement and law and order was enough to spark a massive increase in entrepreneurship and growth. The second thing he did, he says, you know, how do we do development if there's no electricity? <laughs> Very difficult to do anything. He said, I know what we can do. We can build roads. One of the few effective things that can be done without much electricity. So he did just these two things. He put gangsters in jail, and he built roads as never before. This state jumped to 11% GDP growth for a decade. That's all it needed. So I mean, the importance on the one hand of the state performing certain essential functions and how those essential functions are complementary to the emergence of the private sector. So it's not really one versus against versus the other. You need a situation where the state does the basic things which are necessary, and then the private sector is able to come in to do what it needs to do. Um, another thing that Bihar really shows is the importance of good institutions at a much lower level than New Delhi. We tend to be obsessed in all our things on who's going to become the next prime minister, what do we do in the Supreme Court. Right? India is basically run by chief ministers at the state level, and even more by district collectors at the district level. Uh, and we need a huge amount of improved institution there. Uh, the corruption, the misgovernance out there is rampant. There is enormous uh, public uh, disgust at what is happening. A chief minister who is able to clean that up, like Narendra Modi, is then re-elected three times. Naveen Patnaik did a bit of that in Dorissa. He's been re-elected three times. So we are now getting a new situation. I mean, there was a time when the question was, in the cynical Indian politics that we have, how does a government win re-election? And the answer used to be, well, in the first three years, 
uh, you extort about 50,000 crore rupees, a few billion dollars. In the next two years, you spend two-thirds of that to try and win the votes back. Uh, if you lose the election, you have a nice nest egg. If you win the election, you repeat the dose with 50% escalation for inflation. Uh, and that strategy, frankly, did succeed in many states. Uh, so we've, we've had highly corrupt governments which spent, spent a lot of money and then there was populist giveaways. They did get re-elected. So we now, however, have two models. There has been this highly populist corrupt state. There has been the new ones that we've had in uh, Gujarat, in Chhattisgarh, in Bihar, in the other places. We say if you provide good governance and we provide basic state facilities, then economic growth takes off and we get re-elected. I think the most positive thing that's happened to India is that good governance has begun to give political dividends in the form of re-election. So when in the state after state you get guys getting re-elected, that to me is the most positive thing that we've seen. And while uh, Gujarat is dead right in saying we need major reforms at the central level, we also need them at the state level and they need to be done by the state chief ministers. Uh, there's an election coming up in India and very probably there will be Nobody will win a majority. There'll be highly unstable, un unstable government, horse trading on buying your uh, members of parliament and the other guy saying, no, I'll, I'll, I'll pay a little more. But I say at the end of it all, it will be okay because India is really going to be run by strong chief ministers. And what happens at New Delhi will probably matter much less. Uh, I must take uh, up cudgels against on some things. He gave the example of this town of Gurgaon. You know, I said, he says there was Faridabad going in one direction, Gurgaon, and Gurgaon is a great success of the private sector. I know Gurgaon well. It is a success of crony capitalism of the most nauseous kind. Uh, we ourselves, we had a journalist colony out there, and you know, we knew that you had to pay for various facilities. As journalists, we didn't pay. But electricity, they said, there's no way you're going to get electricity unless you pay a large amount of bribes to the state electricity board. We went to the chief minister, who says, sir, for you journalists, I will do anything. But there are some things I cannot do. Please pay the bribe. And the reason he said that was that all the serious top officials in this area had paid money to the chief minister for those posts. So there was a limit to, what, to the extent to which he could discipline. I mean, the public sale of office in Gurgaon is, because there's an extension of Delhi, so much money was coming in, the real estate boom was going on. Uh, there was enough gravy for a very large number of people. So it was an example of crony capitalism. Uh, the, the big builders that you were saying, all of them were in league with the politicians. Politicians got preferential allotments like uh, Robert Vadra, who is uh, Sonia Gandhi's son-in-law. Uh, so I said, it's an example of crony capitalism. That, that is now such a major revolt in Delhi against the extent of crony capitalism. That is an important reason why Indian growth has slowed down. I mean, we had these years of very, very fast growth, and there were many reasons for it, including the global goom. But having grown at as 9% as recently as 2010-11, the next year it came down to 6.5, now it's down to 5, and people are saying, is it going to get any better? And one reason it's not getting any better is that there has been such an outcry against corruption that the old way of doing business of, you know, yeah, we know all these rules, you know, but you pay this money and you get this clearance. So a lot of what we called uh, government asleep, it wasn't government asleep. <laughs> it was government shaking hands with a guy and taking money under the table and things got through. 
That has come to an end. There was, on the one hand, it's this Right to Information Act, which has produced a lot of data, which makes the old-style business impossible. Uh, on the other hand, there have been activist courts, which are willing to stop all kinds of things. There has been an activist Comptroller and Auditor General, who looking after government accounts, has started saying, look, if you had not done this but something else, there would have been so much more money. So there's been this outcry against corruption. And it has, so to speak, disrupted what might be called the social contract. There was an old social contract that in large areas, you could not do business honestly, but you could do it dishonestly, right? Today, with the anti-corruption thing, they said it can't even be done dishonestly. Therefore, you get paralysis. Therefore, you get a lack of decision-making. People saying, you know, in the old days, uh, this, I would be able to build a cement plant in two years. Now it takes me minimum five years. Maybe I'll go to Indonesia. Because in Indonesia, if I pay, I bribe, if I pay a bribe, I get the plant. So in India, even when you pay one, at one level, the other guy doesn't let it through. So there's a kind of jamming up of the whole works. So in some sense, India will need to evolve a new social contract uh, between business and politics. I mean, Politics requires money in any democracy. There are various ways in the United States that you have to raise that particular kind of money. In India, it's been done by extortion and uh, money in, in return for various clearances. That has to come to an end, and we will need a new social contract with more transparency, less corruption, uh, but yet enough money, of course, <laughs> for politics to be greased. Uh, until that happens, I wouldn't be surprised if we have slow growth for a few years more. Thank you. Thanks very much. We have time for questions and answers. If you have a question, please raise your hand and uh, wait for the microphone and identify yourself and your affiliation. <coughs> we'll take a question from the front right here, please. Thanks very much. Uh, my name is Bob Bastien. I'm a senior industry fellow at the Georgetown Center for Business and Public Policy. And um, Dr. I, I really appreciate your comments, both of you, very interesting. Um, you participated in a seminar that I, a, a meeting, a conversation that I organized some years ago when I was at the Coalition of Service Industries. And I remember something you said. It was about, the meeting was about trade liberalization. And you said, in India, liberalization, trade liberalization is skin deep. The support for, for liberalization is skin deep. Um, and, um, in, in, in the context of that comment, but also of India's turn in the 90s, early 90s, toward a much more open uh, market-based economy, how do you explain the sharp, rather recent, sharp turn toward a protectionist um, uh, policy uh, that attempts to grow the economy by enforcing localization, procurement of local uh, of, of goods, particularly in the telecom sector, uh, uh, from, from local sources that at, currently at the moment don't exist, uh, which seem, seems to be a, very, a really retrograde policy, especially in light of the successes uh, of the uh, initial opening policies. Uh, a rather different take on this conversation, yeah. I'm sorry. No, India, India, like most countries, has been a place which has always had free trade lobbies and protectionist lobbies. And both those guys win some victories. The question is who wins more. Uh, in the 1990s, the free trade guys won most of the things. We have got to a stage which I never thought we'd get to. I mean, we started at import duties at 
And when somebody said, let's get it down to 30, people said, you know, all industry will go bust. Today, it's down to 10 is the general level. So, I mean, the free trade guys have won a lot of the arguments. Uh, the protectionist lobbies are there. In the case of localization, once because, uh, thanks to the WTO stuff, uh, a lot of the earlier restrictions and forcing localization became not possible. And that's one reason why India eased up and liberalized on that. But wherever security is concerned, the WTO allows uh, this particular thing to be tweaked. So a number of countries have done it, and the United States has done it. Uh, so, I mean, China itself insists on localization. So, in a very large number of areas. Uh, in the case of uh, defense equipment and telecom, they are attempting to get the same. Uh, it is, as you say, going in the protectionist direction. Uh, but it's not unique. I mean, India has the largest number of anti-dumping suits of any country in the WTO. So it is not as though India is a poster boy for free trade. India has been dragged into this and the, the two lobbies fighting with each other. And on balance to argue that there's a huge lobby in favor of free trade is not the case. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fight. But I would say on balance, if you look at the totality of where your tariff and non-tariff barriers are today compared to where you started, we've come a long way. Yeah, and I'd like to just broaden this question to really, uh, I think the underlying premise of the question is that after 20 years of liberalization, why is it so hard to reform the unreformed sectors of the economy? And why is reform so difficult in India? And the answer to that, I think, is what uh, is the failure of our reformers to sell the reforms to the people. Margaret Thatcher used to say that I used to reform only 20% of the time, but I used to sell my reforms 80% of the time. And the, these sort of, today, the, 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 the government is filled with these iconic reformers from the prime minister down, and they have let us down so badly. Uh, and, and one of the, you know, simple thing, for example, that they, people have got the impression that the reforms actually help the rich and make the country, the rich people richer and the poor poorer. And they've, the, these people never said out, came out and said that, look, there's a difference between being pro-market and pro-business. Pro-market means that you believe in, a, in, a, in, a comp in competition which lowers costs, which, which improves the quality of products, and leads to a rules-based capitalism. Being pro-business is where you leave a lot of authority in the hands of the state, and that leads to crony capitalism that he was uh, describing. And so people got this wrong impression that the, and, and this is the kind of thing that was not done. And I blame the reformers as it's, 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 it's poor Swami and me sort of shouting in the wilderness on Sundays in the Times of India who are reassuring people about the market. Yeah. Question right here. My name is Benjamin Rubin. I'm on a visit from India to USA. I come from the state of Gujarat, 
and I am in the electric power of the state. My question to both of you, Mr. Das, I have your wonderful book, India Unbound, and Mr. Iyer, I keep reading your articles in Economic Times. I have great regards for both of you. My question is that India lives in two parts. If you take 30% of India, you'll see prosperity, technology, everything world class. The other 70% is the other way. So there are two sides of the coin which are not equal. Is it because when India started after independence, there was one train going at one speed. There was a time came when the train got detached. The train which had the engine went faster. The train which got detached became poorer. So this is the difference. Rich has become richer. The poor has become poorer. Is it because in India, education and power are two different things? These two are different tracks, and they never got mixed up. So the education remains somewhere, the power remains somewhere. And so I would like to have your views. Thank you. Well, um, there, are, there is some truth in what you said, but there is a lot of, uh, um, I mean, I disagree. Uh, I, I disagree this detachment that people, it's very fashionable to talk about two Indias, India and Bharat. And, 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 and we forget that in the last 25 years, 1% of the poor have been crossing the poverty line every year. And when you add that up, you're adding up to 250, 270 million people. And this is not as much as China. China's 400 million people have risen. But nevertheless, against that old poverty line, you've, you, have got, you have got progress. And also, I think we've got to understand that the early stages of growth do lead to inequality. They don't, everybody, all boats don't rise right away. But if you wait, if you wait long enough, then they do. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that as well. So I wouldn't get so uh, worried about those two. But that detachment, I don't buy that idea of detachment. If I could just supplement that quickly. You had a situation earlier on where there were so-called Bimaru states. Uh, the states of Central and North India, the Hindi-speaking belt, which were very, very slow-growing. And th that was, in some sense, part of the 70% which was getting left behind. The good thing is that with the new chief ministers that we've come in, many of those states are no now doing 10% growth. So, I mean, there's, the system has... Uh, the, uh, there was a time when earlier on, they were stuck in a low-growth poverty trap. Economic reform has created opportunities with which a lag they have been able to latch on, and they have now become fast growers. So if you look at the regional composition, one of the most heartening things is that the guys who earlier were left behind have started catching up. The second thing is that if you look at the composition, uh, I mean, we have the lower castes, we have the Dalits particularly, the lowest of the low. There are a large number of indicators where they have done really well compared they're in many cases as well, in some cases better. To me, the most heartening thing is that in India, there used to be a thing called FIKI, the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry. Now we have a thing called DIKI, which is the Dalit Indian Chamber of Commerce, because for the first time, these Dalits or the untouchables, as they used to be called, they are spawning millionaires. 
We, the, the Dalit Chamber now has 3,000 registered guys with big business of more than 100 or more than 1,000 crores. So, I mean, these are signs that, you know, while you are dead right in saying that education has been the biggest single problem, which has prevented equality of opportunity, right? The poorest areas had no schools, no decent education. They were unable to take advantage of the opportunities available to the richer elite, and to that extent, they got left behind. But still, with what little has happened, there are a number of these favorable signs. So while much more needs to be done, uh, Gurcharan is right in saying the situation is not as bleak as you painted. Yeah, we'll take a question there, please. Jim Lowen, I'm a free-range sociologist. Uh, question, uh, you said, uh, main speaker, that um, in India, the oppression was from society, not from the state. Could you uh, explain that? Could you elucidate on that? Do you mean the caste system? What do you mean by the oppression yeah, from well, society? Yes, the oppression, yes, the caste system, and particularly the my distinguished uh, discussant here is a Brahmin. And it came from the Brahmins in particular. And the South Indian Brahmin, which is what he is, were the worst <laughs> offenders in this case. Um, and, and so really, no, it's the, the fact is that the upper caste, uh, uh, the, 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 the oppression was from society, but also, um, in a sense, that was the most vibrant part also of the 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 the, the country. And actually, uh, if I I mean, if India needs a strong state today, China needs a stronger society. You know, to uh, yeah. there's a question in the back, right over there, please. Just wait for the microphone, please. Uh, my name is Harris Rothman. I'm an intern at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Mr. Das and uh, Dr. Ayer, uh, you both have touched on uh, sort of the progress toward and the benefits of liberalization in China and India. Uh, and I was wondering if you see in the future uh, any, uh, any prospect for progress uh, in Pakistan, which suffers from both poor governance and uh, an excessively strong and oppressive state. Uh, and I was wondering additionally whether you think that uh, India uh, has any capability to encourage liberalization there, or if it has to be entirely indigenous? Oh, I would say that to the extent you had any liberalization in Pakistan, it has been influenced by what happened in India, not by our lectures, which they won't listen to at all, but simply by the fact that we have begun to do better. The fact is that for the first 30, 40 years after independence, Pakistan's GDP growth was much faster than India's. Pakistan was doing 5-6%, India was doing 3.5%. So without doubt, it was a richer, better part uh, of the original subcontinent than India was. After 1991, India began to accelerate and overtake it directly. And they've asked themselves, you know, what do we need to do? Uh, on the one hand, there has always been the sneaking admiration for India's democracy. I mean, in Pakistan now, for the very first time, a government actually completed a full five-year term. It never happened earlier. So, I mean, they are seeing this as some improvement in governance. And till now, they have taken the position that until this Kashmir thing is settled, we cannot have any normalization of economic relations or trade with India. So, under WTO, India had given most favored nation treatment 
to Pakistani exports, but Pakistan would not give it to Indian goods. Now they have come to the conclusion that this has been counterproductive, it hasn't really achieved anything. And they have said, okay, we will also now give you most favored nation treatment, we will open up the land border, we will begin trading. Formal trade between the two countries is extremely small. Informal trade is much larger. The way of judging it is that India's largest export destination, believe it or not, is the United Arab Emirates. And the reason is that all our exports to Iran and Pakistan are actually getting rooted by there in order to avoid various political sanctions of various kinds. But it's illogical to do it that way. It should be going over the land. But, you know, again, Pakistan wanted to, in fact, the most favored nation treatment was supposed to be given by December 2012. It has not happened. Yeah. Then they began to say, we're going to negotiate this. I said, excuse me, most favored nation by definition is given to everybody. A negotiation is an improvement on those terms. Uh, so, you know, we are not there yet in terms of liberalization, either of trade or of normal relations. But we've come a long way because, uh, frankly, the last minority government, it was amazing, nobody expected it, but they did uh, the most far-reaching liberalization of trade between the two countries. And when the chief minister, when the prime minister, you know, started using the word most favored nation, the Pakistani press went, uh, you know, were berserk because in Urdu, most favored nation status means my, mera sabse pasandi mulk, meaning my, fav- my most favored friend, you know, and they said, how can you call our enemy your most favored friend, and he had to explain that MFN really was given out to 100 other countries. India was only 101st, and so it was all, <laughs> it was all, all right. But I think the problem, you know, I mean, it's a good thing that we have a civilian government now that's come into Pakistan, so there is, there is hope. And if we can keep, if they can stand up to the army uh, and to the Secret Service, ISI, um, I think there is hope, and the MFN also, I believe, will 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 come in 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 in, in due course. Uh, and the big hope then is that once that is settled, then we could have a free trade area that we could move towards what we call SAFTA. What you had was NAFTA, but uh, for to s- but you need to you need a Clinton type politician to sell that uh, to the countries of of. Uh, of South Asia, of South Asia. Most of all, I think India. We need to ignore Pakistan and heed China. I think Pakistan pulls us down into identity politics, and China raises our ambition with all that infrastructure to really do much, much better. And that sixty percent of the defense budget that's being um, focused on Pakistan. I would cut that way, way down, put some of it against China, but actually uh, do really, we, today, the one area where we have a lead today over China is in the area of, um, of, 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 of the Navy, of the Navy. And really to, and, and this is where the, a very important role with the US is that India could take over more and more the burden that the U.S. has of policing the Indian Ocean and uh, in exchange for more technology in the naval area. 
And that's where I think where, I mean, our strategic policy should move in that direction. We'll take a question right there, also in the back. Uh, Mike Delaney, Officer of the U.S. Trade Representative. Right now, India is uh, experiencing a pretty severe economic downturn, 5%, um, maybe a little less than that, uh, GDP growth. Uh, how do you, how is India going to get out of this? I, I noticed, I noticed that, that you largely have an internal analysis of how this happened. There, there isn't much reference to the external uh, economic situation, but how do you see how and when do you see India recovering from this and resuming its uh, earlier rates of growth? Uh, the fast economic growth that we had for a decade was partly driven by a global bubble. The bursting of that global bubble has affected growth, you will find, all developing countries. It's not just India that slowed down. China has slowed down, Korea has slowed down, Brazil, Russia. I mean, everybody has slowed down. So the original fast growth was in part a global phenomenon. The slowdown is again in part a global phenomenon. Over and above that, however, I am positing that part of the fast growth was driven by the old social contract, which has broken down. Uh, there is now this jam up in decision-making that nobody wants to take a decision. Uh, you, you, you can't just get, I mean, you make any particular proposal and the guy says, you know, if I clear it, I'll be accused of something. So you arrange that there is a committee with 25 ministries uh, and they all take a decision together so you can't put the blame on any one guy and the thing will go to a cabinet committee. And, you know, the, until we redo that particular thing, I think we will not do faster than 6 to 7% growth at most for a few years. After that, I would imagine that, you know, between political, between the political parties, business and society, a new, equilibri a new equilibrium will be reached. Corruption will not disappear. But it will become tolerable again to yeah. the extent that it permits these fast clearances that are required. And in addition, I would quickly make one other comment, that the reason why the growth slowed apart from what he has said, is the fact that this government made a false choice between equity and growth. They took growth for granted. They didn't realize that growth is something you have to work on. You have to build infrastructure. You have to keep it going. They made that false choice in favor of welfare, welfare measures, and, uh, and, 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 and frankly, um, they, 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 if, if, if some of the same attention, I'm not even talking money, attention had been paid to power, infrastructure, the roads, and so on, I think we would have been much better. But overall, in terms of the future, I agree with Swami. The fundamentals of the economy are such that even at this low point in our s story, you still have a savings rate of 27, 28% for an economy. And that, that will translate itself into, uh, into, into high growth very quickly. We'll take a question in the, in the front. Right here. Uh, Rick Rosso and the Clardy Associates. Uh, thanks. Good to see you both. Um, you know, uh, you both are proponents of a lot of uh, big ideas. And when you think about how big ideas in Washington propagate from associations like this to government, 
part of it is, of course, people move so much. You know, you're a journalist one day, you're in government the next, you're a think tank and carry big ideas, and there's a lot of uh, new ideas that come out of that. In India, how do you feel the process works, or in the best case, should work, on ideas like this translating to actual action? One-on-one um, -on -one conversations you have in back rooms, or is it, is it a lot of the think tanks in India, or how is it that you think this could and should translate into actual action at some point? Well, I mean, the fact is that ultimately it's the politics, it's the hard work of politics that translates th thoughts into action. And so that part, uh, and this is where I was saying that this new middle class is remarkably unbound in its mental, in its mindset. And they are, uh, and they're angry at the corruption and things like that. And it's really, my hope is that they are going to get involved much more into politics. But in terms of ho how things happen today, well, it's, 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 it's really, uh, newspapers, I have to give credit to, have done a very good job. I mean, some of the, uh, I, I also write a separate column which appears in seven Indian newspapers with large circulations. And, and I get a lot of uh, comments on those. And that helps. And, and, and Swami's column in the Times of India is, is, a, is really a legendary uh, column. And Times of India is the largest English newspaper in the world. I mean, four million circulation on a Sunday and a 12 million readership on a Sunday. So even if 10% are reading uh, him or me, that's it's having some some impact. Did you want to say anything? No. Okay, we'll take a couple more questions. One in the back, and then we'll go go to you. Um, I I just want to go back to. Could you identify yourself? Nimai Mehta from the American University. I I want to go back to the theme that both of you have been touching on. And, and especially the theme in your book, Mr. Das, about the relationship between the state and society in India. And I've not read your book, and I plan to now, but um, could you give me a little better idea of what you mean and what you meant when you contrasted India and China? And Meghna Desai, if you may know, has made a similar type of distinction, uh, comparison between China and India. In what sense is, was the Indian society or is strong? And, and then the, your last, your point about the need for a liberal party, uh, where do you find or would you f look for a constituency for such a liberal party in Indian society, either the state level or at the national level? And I, I, I think these two questions are related because yeah. my sense of, my first impression of a strong society as opposed to us. Uh, strong state is that if you have a weak society, if, if you have a strong society in some sense, you may be weakening the demand for a strong state in in in, in the in in some yeah. sense that, that uh, it may it may not be to the advantage to everyone's advantage to have too strong a society. Um, well, uh, the to answer your second question first which is about the Liberal Party. 
it's in in a sense i'm talking about reviving the swatantra party in india and um i think the constituency is the new middle class uh and 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 more and more this is going to become a very powerful factor in 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 the politics of the country and and uh the the <coughs> the the another failure if i may just point out which i missed saying so in my talk is that you know for a very large number of people they think the constitution of india kind of fell from heaven in 1947 they never thought that this was their constitution there were of course uh people i mean there were there was a, it was an elite project B- making a constitution is an elite project uh, in in a way everywhere but nobody translated the ideals of the constitution into the language of the people the last person actually who did that was mahatma gandhi during the freedom struggle he talked about dharma sadharan dharma as the dif- when he fought untouchability when he fought against the british he constantly used the word dharma and people understood now that language of today's constitution of liberty equality etc has to be put into the language of dharma and that's one of the appeals i make in my book that um and again i talk about tocqueville as being the inspiration behind it so i i would say that's kind of where the constituency of the thing about society society what is society nehru defined it very well in his book he says the society in india is the village the caste and the joint family and now of course it's the joint that is the three components of society and that's what indian was defined by those three components of our society now <clears throat> the important thing is not so much that it's strong or weak but the fact is that it's it's still it's because of the reforms because of high growth rates this society has begun to change and people are migrating the number of people who go to other states for jobs indian railway sells 9 billion tickets in in so you can see divide that by 1.2 billion people so you got significant number of journeys even if you exclude commuters etc so um i would say that this society is evolving it's changing one of the changes is towards a civil society so we are at an important moment in our history where this transition and this transition could i mean what i would like is to have this transition be a transition which sells the liberal ideals and the liberal ideas need to be sold but in through the pre-modern ideal idea of dharma because otherwise they are too foreign for a lot of people i'd simply say that if you look at the evolution of just the way the political parties are going there is no role for ideology at all in effect what we are getting is individual families and clans becoming political parties that is the clear phenomenon uh, even in what used to be established parties there was thing called the janta party 
But in Uttar Pradesh, it became the Mulayan Singh Yadav's family runs that party. Lalu Yadav ran that particular family in the other place. Deva Gowda's family began to run it in Karnataka. Uh, in Tamil Nadu, you have two political parties, supposedly, but actually one is the Karunanidhi family against the Jayalalata family. Mayavati has come up. So, you know, if you just look at the progress, which are the parties coming up? And the answer is, progressively, people seem to think that if you if there is this family or this guy who is quite good, he will do things for me, he will deliver. It would appear, therefore, that there is no belief in objective good delivery by whomever I elect. What they're really saying is that, you know, uh, things are so personalized and systems don't work objectively, therefore this family is good for me and that family is not so good for me. I regret to say this is a vote of no confidence in institutions. Yeah. It means that and institutions are not functioning. Therefore, you need the family who will help you get over these particular hurdles. It is not a good sign, but unquestionably it is the sign, direction in which India is going currently. I, I would just say that in the economy, is it's gone the other way. That more and more, as we've, as there's been much more competitiveness in the marketplace, you've necessarily had to depend less on family members running companies and many more professionals have gone in and people have have, have uh, so in a sense the new middle class that's awakening now is actually seeing is is a, is seeing the success of the their economic life and this is where i hope they will reject this family model in political life well, we have time for one last quick question and quick answers right there, please. Hi, my name is Amanda Deerfield and I'm a visiting scholar here at Cato. And my question is about this idea of legal seniority. Um, I've read that you've talked about it a little bit. Is this a workable solution? Would this be able to be put in place? You know, you all mentioned the anger that the middle class has toward corrupt politicians. Are they asking for this idea that if you run for an elected position and you have a criminal case against you, that running actually expedites the trial? Is this an idea that anyone's supporting, or what do you think about it, I guess? I think I, it's possible that I was the actual originator. I mean, you often find that a thousand guys have thought of the same idea. But certainly in terms of writing, I think about 15 years ago I began to write on this particular I issue. actually credit Swami with this idea in this book. Uh, which is essentially that if you p put criminals, uh, the, uh, what you're expressing is the idea that if you, if people, if you're elected and you have a, a, a legal case against you, you're fast-tracked and this then will discourage criminals from running for politics. Yeah, so, the, you know, since we got to the situation, basically, in, I would say 20 years ago, where increasingly more and more criminals began to get elected and became in, in, into the system. And they started doing so because they said, once I get in, I mean, uh, all the cases against me basically will not be pursued any further. So there was an incentive for criminals to enter, enter politics on a large scale. And we had a system that couldn't deal with them properly because... Basically, the judicial system didn't function properly. So after that, in more recent times, I've seen a number of people, including Kamal Nath, uh, who is a prominent member of the current Congress party, mention this particular issue. So at least it's being discussed. The judicial boys are divided on whether you can make such a distinction. 
they say you know uh, you cannot discriminate against one class of people by giving them seniority i would argue that you probably can you can say that this is one of the qualifications for after all there are various qualifications for being able to stand for parliament which you have to you know you have to be 25 years old or you have to be born in india you know so since there are various qualificatory statements can one of them be that in the event of your having a criminal case against you Uh, this will be given seniority and fast track because it is good for the political system if you are innocent your name really should be cleared right so even if you are innocent you should be in favor of fast track in that particular system so let us see where it goes it's got to the stage where from just being a maverick idea of mine uh, it's actually being talked about occasionally there is no solid momentum behind it yet thanks very much we've run out of time please help me in thanking both of our speakers today